0: take refuge in Buddha, take refuge in Dharma, take refuge in Sangha. I want to welcome everyone, first of all, all the people here and those that are with us online. We've just completed a week-long sasheen. It's a gratitude sasheen. I brought to this practice a, another, an old ancient practice. I brought this to the group this week called 32 Parts of the Body. It's from the Satipatthana Sutta. It's old part of the Pali ca- Canon. And it was an interesting practice that I took up a, about seven years ago. And then again, when the pandemic started, because I felt that it really grounded me. It really helped me get stabilized, and it, but it also has lots of other parts to it that continue to unfold. And I would just wanted to name a few more, talk about it a little bit more today. 32 parts of the body at first seems very strange because it's c- categorized and they're not always parts. Like I've, I've chanted it a few times, it's head, hair, body, hair, nails, teeth, skin. Flesh, sinew, bone, bone marrow, kidneys, heart, liver, diaphragm, spleen, lungs, large intestines, small intestines, stomach, feces, brain, bile, phlegm, pus, blood, sweat, fat, tears, grease, saliva, mucus, oil of the joint, and urine. So if you hadn't heard those before, you would think, what? What are those? Those are the weirdest 32 parts of the body I've ever heard. So that was part of the hurdle for me to get over was my own kind of arrogance and superiority of how we classify the body. This is the right way. That's the wrong way. And what would the ancients have to teach us in modern day with all our modern knowledge of the body and, and um, anatomy and medicine? But I took it on anyhow and the practices you would you would memorize it, it in little groups of five or six and chant the whole thing forward and backwards several times and part of what it does is it it, it just calms the mind and it gives and can give you a glimpse and insight into no self and it I was just thinking, thinking while I was meditating, <laughs> I was just observing as I was meditating, or <laughs> as pondering, I like that <laughs> but I took, when I was in college, I took anatomy and physiology and, and human biology, and we were always studying the body, that other body, that other body, the body someplace else, the skeleton, wherever it was, Never this body, and it was always strange. I always felt it strange that we had this kind of love-hate thing about our bodies. And we always tried to look a certain way or be a certain way, but we didn't really appreciate the body for what it does. It's our vehicle for this life, and and so this bo- this practice really brings. A practice into this body. It's like these, this head hair, this body hair, these nails and teeth, the skin. So, as you learn about the body, as you directly observe it, uh, lots of times reactions come up, so that's part of the practice. It could also help reduce our involvement in our misconceptions about beauty or attractiveness. Originally, or at least what we were taught, or what has been handed down as this practice was given to young monks uh, as a cure for lustfulness because then they'd see all these awful things about the body. You take the skin off and it's just blood and there's guts and all kinds of things. And it would reduce lustfulness. And maybe that works, but it also helps us look at what we think of as what's beautiful and why we think it, why we believe that. What what have we been told? And can we actually see the true beauty in each body? It helps us with the realization that the body will die and dissolve. We have a huge resistance to that truth. I mean, we know it, but we can't believe it. We have a deep attachment to our bodies. And this practice can help us remain happy, even as you age, and perhaps happy or satisfied even as you die, let go of this body. They say if you reach old age and haven't trained the mind, then pride of the body, worrying about privacy and control in old age just becomes your new way of suffering. You can't, can't realize that this body is dissolving, is sagging, and not that vital young Body it once was. It's an interesting practice to look at all the elements of the body. Do we own them? Or are we just using them? The calcium that we have. Is that ours? Do we really own it? Or do we have it for a lifetime? they are a central part of our bodies, our life. And will the body fail us at some point? It will, of course. But working with this practice helps us to not take it so personally. We often think, oh, that body, it's not doing what it used to do. But if we realize it's just an organism that is going through its life, just like just as all other organisms go through their lives, then we don't take it so personally as like a a failure. I didn't do something. I didn't exercise enough. I didn't eat, eat right, so my body is falling apart. So when you do the practice, you Repeat it silently and out loud. And then you study a little bit about where it's located in the body. See, where's the heart? What it's next to? What its purpose? What are the characteristics? What is its color, size, texture? What does it evoke? Those are interesting. And then adding loving kindness or metta. Appreciation for each part, including bile and phlegm and pus and blood. Helps us see the complexity of the human body, but also its frailty. So they say that it helps us look at no self eradicating this erroneous view of this important solid permanent self. It's a healing meditation for people, and perhaps even cure illness. It's the conqueror of boredom and delight, and the conqueror of fear and dread. And allows one to both to bear both cold and heat. Be helpful sometimes here. (laughs) It enables deep concentration and can make one more intelligent. I don't know. (laughs) Better than crossword puzzles or something. (laughs) Aids in the attainment of jhana or concentrated states. Aids in the attainment of nirvana. But as I said, I found it also very helpful in feeling very grounded. So when you begin the practice, you start with some mindful breathing to calm and center the body. And then you proceed through each part and end with a short loving-kindness meditation. In extending loving-kindness to ourselves in this way, we we can reflect on how our body is the only one we will ever have. And it's the vessel in which we live, and in which we'll find the path we can't, which the path of freedom is right there. And then we can actually gradually expand our loving kindness to all beings. So one of the things I learned just while I was here was about the um, heart being in the shape of a lotus bud. I thought that was just a very nice image for our gratitude Sashin, And I wanted to bring in gratitude and generosity, it was a nice segue for the body. So you can always remember within your body you have the heart, you have a heart, the heart in the shape of a lotus bud which will bloom in you, and this body is the body of Buddha. I have some quotes from different um, schools and thoughts about gratitude and generosity. I thought it was quite interesting because all traditions, all religious traditions, humanistic traditions, um, point to generosity and gratitude as foundational and essential for a spiritual practice. Here's from Donald Altman of Living Kindness. This is the Jewish concept of generosity. In Judaism, the concept of giving is essential through what is known as Sadaka, or charity. Actually, the root of the word stands for justice, righteousness, or fairness. Here are the eight levels of charity for guiding people. Uh, for, uh, for Starting with the lowest, going to the highest. About um, generosity. First is giving unwillingly. <laughs> so you're forced to give. Then giving willingly, but giving less than you could. Then giving only after being asked, And then giving without being asked. Giving to a recipient you do not know, but who knows you. Giving to a recipient you know, but who does not know you. Giving when both parties are anonymous to each other. And then the highest level is giving that enables self-reliance. Oh, I like this one. In running the spiritual path, Roger Jocelyn recommends a simple practice for when you, when you are exercising. It's called running with alms. And when I first heard that, I thought I had this image of somebody running with a begging bowl. <laughs> How does that work? <laughs> running with alms involves carrying a few dollars with you on the run with the intention of giving it away. Holding money in your pocket. Expecting to offer it to another serves as a reminder to give of yourself. In Simple Truths, Kent Nurberg states, Giving is a miracle that can transform the heaviest of hearts. Two people who moments before lived in separate worlds of private concerns, suddenly meet each other over a simple act of giving, of sharing. The words expand, a moment of goodness is created, and something new comes into being where before there was nothing. But true giving is not an economic exchange. It's a generative act. It does not subtract from what you have, It multiplies the effect we can have on the world. And the last one. I'll do two last ones. (laughs) Buddhist Christina Feldman of Heart of Wisdom, Mind of Calm, observes, generosity lies in the heart of spiritual practice. Extending generosity to ourselves and others gladdens our heart, is a direct way of healing division, and brings joy. And Jerry Larkin uh, in Love Dharma says The Buddha taught over and over that generosity is the first door we walk through if we're serious about our spiritual work. Without generosity, enlightenment is flat out impossible. We're too self centered. Unless our relationships are bathed in generosity, they don't have a chance. At the other extreme, generosity can buttress a faltering relationship, giving other important characteristics time to work their magic. And she's speaking of the paramitas that we talked about last week. So as you practice Generosity can hold you steady so that you can practice further and further gratitude and generosity. It fuels the little extras, the surprise moments that keep us fresh and interesting. According to the Buddha, if we are rich in this life, it's because we've been generous in past lives. If we want to be rich in the future, we must give now. some thoughts on how we can continue to practice with generosity, how it can fuel our path and bring us great joy.